that's the problem I have with sin. Maybe you have a little problem with that as well. I don't know. But I know that sin's a, a, a problem that every one of us, is, it, it, it's not just, you know, a 95% possibility that we're going to struggle with sin in our life. It's a 100% possibility. And we've all done it. We've all been there. Maybe some of us are still struggling right now with some kind of problem in your life. The older saints back in the day, if you go back and read some of the books that they wrote and some of the sermons they preached, the older saints used to talk about something called besetting sins. Besetting sins. And that's a phrase that comes from Hebrews chapter 12 that tells us in King James English to let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. We don't use that word much anymore, but let me tell you what a besetting sin is. A besetting sin is a sin that continually trips us up. It's a sin that leaves us feeling defeated in our walk with the Lord. It's a sin that we can never just seem to get over. It's always there tripping us up somehow. Some might call them habitual sins. Other people might call them addictions. A besetting sin. It reminded me of a story about four ministers that went away, four pastors that went away on a retreat. And as they sat around the fire talking one night, one pastor said, hey, let's all share our besetting sins. I'll go first. Let's have a moment of authenticity and transparency here. Let me go first. I'll tell you what my besetting sin is. My besetting sin is this. Every so often, I'll slip away from the office and I'll go to the racetrack and bet on the horses. The second pastor he volunteered this. He said, my besetting sin is that I keep a bottle of wine down in my basement, and when I get really frustrated with my deacons, I go down to the basement, and I take a little nip, make me feel better. The third pastor, he kind of gulped a little bit, and then he said this. He said, my besetting sin is that I keep a punching bag at home, and when I get mad at my wife, I go home, and I think about her as I punch that punching bag. The fourth pastor, when every eye turned toward him, he, he thought about it for a minute, then he said, when he was asked, what's your besetting sin? He hesitated just a moment, but they coaxed it out of him. He said, I tell you guys, my besetting sin is gossip, and I can't wait to get home. <laughs> you got that? Anyway... Listen, I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. There's probably something in your life that you're struggling with and you wish you didn't struggle with it anymore. Maybe it's the way you spend money. You, you, you know, you, you seem wasteful because you're materialistic at heart and you can't break that, seem to break that tendency. Or maybe it is some kind of addiction with drugs or alcohol and you find yourself stumbling over that. Maybe it's pornography. This culture struggles. As a matter of fact, it's been declared a health emergency in some of our states, a public health crisis. We all struggle with besetting sins. I don't care who you are. And I include myself in that. I, you know, I don't stand up here and claim to be that I am without sin. Trust me, there are things I struggle in my life with too. It seems like believers really struggle with besetting sins. As a matter of fact, I would say especially believers struggle with sin, besetting sins, because most non-believers don't even know they're in a struggle. They're just going along with it. They don't know any better. But we do. Because there's something in us that recognizes sin when we begin to participate in it. I want to make a statement here. I don't even know if I, yes, I did. I want you to write those last two sentences down. 
I really do. I want you to think about this and what it might mean to you in the life you're trying to live for Christ. Repentance and faith in Christ doesn't mean the struggle, doesn't mean your struggle against sin is over. It does mean, though, that we will never again live at peace with our sins. That there will be a daily struggle going on in your life to overcome the besetting sin that you're struggling with, whatever that sin might be. The fight against sin for us as believers, it becomes a lifetime struggle of pressing on for the prize of the high calling we've received in Christ Jesus, to be holy as he is holy. And that's a struggle. It's a struggle for me. I'm sure that I'm not alone in that. So here's the question that Psalm 6 addresses for us. What do you do when you find that you failed God again? What do you do when you want to hide from God in shame? What do you do when you doubt your own salvation? What do you do when you feel like dirt? Because there I go again. How can I possibly come to the altar again? I was there last week and the week before that and the week before that. What do you do when you feel like you can't even approach God anymore because you feel so guilty and dirty because of your failure again? Psalm 6 tells us what to do. Psalm 6 gives us a prayer to pray. Psalm 6 gives us a pattern we should follow to experience again Forgiveness for our sins. Psalm 6 is one of seven penitential psalms that deal directly with the nature of sin and its corrosive effect in our lives. But thankfully, Psalm 6 also gives us the remedy for sin when we lose our struggle against it. When you sin, Psalm 6 says this, basically, get honest with God, plead with God, and then rest in his forgiveness. There's my outline for the message. So here's, here we go. Y'all ready for this? Let's do it. Let's read it together. I'll read it to you. It's on the, the uh, overhead above me. Psalm 6 says this. It gives us some con uh, context. It says, For the director of music, with stringed instruments, according to Shemineth, we don't know what that phrase means. It was probably some kind of musical term. A psalm of David. We do know that David wrote this psalm. We don't know... What was going on in David's life when he wrote the psalm? Did he write this psalm as a result of his adultery with Bathsheba and the fallout that came from that? We don't know. We know he wrote Psalm 51 because of that. Or was it one of any of the other number of times that David, the man after God's own heart, failed God because of his sin? We don't know. But he did write this for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Lord... Do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. And I want to stop right here and throw a little commentary in that will help you as you read the Psalms. Here's a hint. Whenever you come to the word enemies, 
or foes in the Psalms. Don't think about people. Don't, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Okay, keep that in mind. When we talk about foes or enemies in the Psalms, we're not talking about people. What we're talking about are the spiritual enemies that we face in life. When you come to the word enemies, think about the spiritual foes that we come against every day. Satan, those internal sinful desires that we struggle with. The world's philosophies that we're always trying to push out of our thinking in order to live a life for God. That's what enemies is talking about here, spiritual foes, okay? Let's move along, verse 8. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies, not people, what are they? All my enemies, all those spiritual enemies that are out there trying to oppose me from, li for, from living according to the, the will of God. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I thank you for this word. And I pray that you would help me deliver it in, in, in a clear and meaningful way. I pray, Father, that you would just get me out of the way and speak through me, Jesus. I pray that you would talk to your people this morning. Use this word to drive home the power of your grace that's available to those of us who will simply take you at your word and trust you to do what you said you would do. Lord, you're faithful. Your word is faithful. You never fail us. Convince us of that today, Holy Spirit. Convince us that God is forever faithful to us, no matter how faithless we might be. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for this word and its power. Use it today to encourage our hearts and challenge us to press on in this life we've given you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I want you to remember today as we get started that the Psalms are given to us to use in our worship and in our prayers. Jesus grew up singing these Psalms as he worshiped his heavenly Father. He references Psalm 6 in his teachings. As a matter of fact, one of these verses is referenced in his Sermon on the Mount, another in a teaching that he was giving to a, to a large group of, of people that had gathered, and he referenced it once more in teaching the disciples about the death that he was facing on the cross. So J Jesus used this particular psalm. He was very familiar with it. He had probably uh, uh, memorized it, not because he needed it, but because he knew we needed it. So... Jesus, this was very much a, a, a psalm that helped form Jesus' spirituality. And because Psalm 6 and other psalms like this one helped shape his spirituality, we should let this psalm shape our spirituality too, the way we see God, the way we see uh, his relationship with us. So God gives us Psalm 6, I think, to teach us how to pray when we're in the same situation as David was, whatever that situation happened to be. The implication, the implication for us is this. This psalm has been included in the word of God, in the book of Psalms, because we need to be taught what to do when we sin. We need to know what we should do when we fail God yet again. See, this is... This is the reality. There are times that we're going to stumble in our struggle with sin, and we need scriptures like this to tell us what the remedy for that is. So we can be restored to the, to the joy and the hope that we've received in Christ Jesus, the hope of our salvation. So what does Psalm 6 tell us to do? 
when we stumble yet again. Now, how many of you need a word like this? I know I do. As I was putting the sermon together, I was reminded of something that happened in my childhood growing up in India. I grew up in a boarding school in India. We lived in dorms, and uh, we didn't have city sewage systems. We had septic tanks uh, for each of the dorms. And the septic tank for one of the dorms that I lived in, Phelps Hall, when I was in fifth and sixth grade, uh, the septic tank was in the front of the building down a little slope of a hill. And at the top of the slope, there was a tree. And us being boys, we, hung, we hanged a rope from the tree that would swing us over the slope of the hill. Anybody ever done that kind of thing? We love doing that. I don't know what boys are crazy, man, you know. And uh, anyway, one, one day a friend of ours, mine, named John Harvey, he's probably about 11 or 12 years old at the time, he was swinging on that rope when it broke, okay? Now, when the rope broke, he ended up tumbling down that hill into the septic tank that was open for repairs. Yeah, and, and it was funny. I'm just saying, it was funny. He never got over it. Every, I mean, he was reminded of it constantly until the day he graduated. He found himself sitting chest deep in a septic tank. The worst part of it was we had to help him out. That was gross. But anyway, I, I think, seriously, I, I think that that's a pretty good picture of the situation David found himself in when he wrote this song. He is sitting chest deep in a septic tank of his own making. The stink, the humiliation, the embarrassment of his sin, he's just sitting in it, stewing in it, the sh wallowing in the shame and the guilt of what he'd done. Have you ever felt like that? Well, here I go again, God. And you're broken and you're hurting. Read, read those first few verses in Psalm 6, and that describes any one of us sitting in a septic tank, chest deep in our shame and our guilt, wallowing in the pain and the humiliation of what we've done again. The first thing David does is he gets honest. David gets honest. We need to get honest. First, you see that David gets honest about his responsibility. In verse 1, David asked God not to rebuke him in anger or discipline him in wrath. But I want you to notice something. David doesn't deny that he deserves a rebuke, that he deserves some wrath. Clearly, David understands, I deserve everything I get. I deserve it. But God, please don't. David implicitly admits here that he's responsible for his sin. He doesn't blame anybody else. He admits that I'm sitting here in this septic tank because I put myself here. Mama didn't do it. Daddy didn't do it. I'm the one that climbed on the rope and took a swing off the hill. We see here that, one thing I want us to see here is this, as we get into this. We see here that David didn't have to clean himself up before he began calling out to God. 
He didn't have to climb out of the septic tank even before he started asking God for mercy and help in his time of need. I want you to know something. You may be sitting here right now wallowing in the shame and guilt of something you did last night, maybe this morning. You can approach him while you're still sitting in your mess. You can still approach God even when you're sitting in your mess. So David gets honest about his responsibility. That's where it starts. And then he's, he also gets honest about his state of being. He gets honest about the way he's feeling. He gets honest about the situation he finds himself in. Verses 2 and 3 says that he's feeling frail and weak. Even his bones hurt. You ever felt sorrow like that? His soul is in anguish. It's wounded. Every part of him is, is just, you know how it feels when you're bruised and beaten up? That's the way he feels. He feels rotten inside and out, and he wonders, Lord, how long? How long is this pain going to last? Is this going to be what I experience the rest of my life? When will this be over? And some people want to, want to say that David is literally sick, but I don't think so. I think that David is dealing with the consequences of guilt caused by his sin. Sin wreaks havoc on the human soul. It rips us up one side and down the other. The guilt and shame that comes from sin can tear us apart. It separates us from God. It wrecks our emotions. It destroys our physical health. Some guy put it this way, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing to pay. And some of us know exactly what that feels like. We've been in that septic tank. We found ourselves sitting in it, chest deep. Well, sometimes you feel like you're over your head in it. Hurting so bad you can't take another breath. David gets honest about the way he feels. You see, here's the deal. Some of us aren't honest about what's really going on in our life. We're trying to pretend as if, well, it's okay, I'll get over it. And you're dying inside, and you're not honest about it. You're in denial about the pain you're in. Or you're still trying to numb it with something, and you're making it worse, digging the hole still. But David gets honest about his situation, about the way he's feeling. Look, some of you today in this room may be struggling with the guilt and the shame of sin. You're sitting chest deep in a septic tank. You're miserable, you're in pain, every part of you hurts, and the shame and the guilt of your sin is overwhelming your soul, it's tearing you up. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay there. There's a way out. Like Adam and Eve, you may want to hide from God because of what's going on, but instead, Psalm 6 says we need to get honest with God. We need to come out of hiding into his glorious light. Get honest about what you've done. Get honest about the way you feel. Get honest about what's going on in your life. But then secondly, you can't stop there. You've got to plead with God for mercy. Plead with God for mercy. And we see that in Psalms 4 through 7. And if you're a parent, you probably know what this looks like. Kids can make the best lawyers when they want something from us, can't they? I bet Aiden is going to make a pretty good attorney one day if that's what he... Because you, you, Oh, yeah, I know. He, can, he pleads his case all the time, doesn't he? Yeah, he's looking at me. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll get off that. 
Kids are the, are the best at it. They come up with these great arguments. They present those arguments with great effect. They are able to sway us and persuade us to see what they see, to understand things the way they understand them. David here pleads for mercy on the basis of three arguments. And I want you to notice this. These arguments are based not on David's character, not on David deserving mercy. These arguments are based on God's character and who God is, that he's a God of mercy. We see David pleading his case. He pleads for mercy on the basis of God's character. In verse 4, he says, Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. David doesn't build his case on the strength of his own frail, weak, feeble, defective character. He builds his case on the strength of God's flawless, perfect character. You see, God is a God of unfailing love. God is a God of perfect love. God is a God of unchanging love, unconditional love. His lo we just sang the song, did we not? God's love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on us. That's who he is. If you think you can approach God on the basis of your flawless character, dude, you are messed up. You can't even get in the front door. The only basis by which we may approach God is because of who he is and what he's done. Not because of who we are and what we think we've done. Or what we promise to do. Our good intentions don't get us in the door, by the way. Even when we're faithless in our love for God, God is still faithful in his love for us. We approach God on the basis of his character, not our own. Second, David pleads on the basis of the praise that he wants to give God. He builds his case on the basis of the praise that he wants to give God. Verse 5 says, among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the, from the grave? You see, David wants to use his life to bring glory and honor to God. Dead men can't praise God. Sinful men can't praise God. People wallowing in their shame and their guilt will never be able to praise God. There's no glory to God if we stay mired in the septic tank of our sin. He wants to raise us up, put our feet on a solid rock. Then we can praise his name. Then we can give him glory. Then we can point other people to him. And they can see, through our testimony, the power and the glory of God, who's unfailing in his love for his people. David wants God to restore him to life so he can continue to offer God praise and live a life that brings God glory. The third argument he makes he pleads on the basis of his suffering. This is really important. Some, somebody in this room needs to hear this point this morning. David pleads for mercy on the basis of the suffering he's experiencing. Verses 6 and 7 says, I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Here's the assumption that underlies this argument. And the assumption is this, God, you're good, and you don't want your children to suffer. See, a lot of you think that God's out to get you for what you've done. Couldn't be further from the truth. God wants to restore you in spite of what you've done. God wants to bless you in spite of the way you have denied him and rejected him. God wants to lavish his love on us as his children. He doesn't want to keep us down. He wants to lift us up. That's who God is. 
He's a good God, a kind God. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. See, some of, some of us have got such a distorted view of who God is and how he works. We don't understand how good he is, how forgiving he is, how kind he is. We are convinced because of whatever, maybe past experiences or misunderstanding of the Bible, but we're convinced he's just out to keep us down, man. God's a God that kicks me when I'm down. That's what his people have done. We got to get that thing. That's that. You cannot worship God if, if you don't know clearly who he is. You can't approach God unless you know that he invites you to approach him. No matter what you've done, where you've been, what, what stink might be on, on your life at the moment. He pleads on the basis of his suffering. David assumes God really does care about him, that God really does care about what he's going through. David believes God is a God of compassion and kindness, that God doesn't want him to live on in this endless torment of guilt and shame. David believes that God's love and concern for him far outweighs the sin he might have committed against God, that God's grace is greater than all our sin. Do you believe in a God that's greater than all your sin? That's who he is. That's who he is. So Psalm 6 teaches us that when we've sinned, when we failed God again, to first get honest with God. Get honest about our responsibility. Get honest about what's going on and the way it's making us feel and the way it's tearing our life up. And then plead with God based on the character of who God is and on what he's promised for us. And that's simply the message, I believe, in 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 simply puts in an encapsulated form what Psalm 6 has said to us. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God that we have violated his moral commands, we have stepped over the boundaries that he's placed in our life, if we agree with God that we have sinned against him, admitted responsibility, admitted that the pain we're in is not because of anything he's done, but what we brought upon ourselves, then, based on who he is, he is faithful, and he is just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you see that message? It's a New Testament message in the book of Psalms, right? So here's the third thing that we need to do after we get honest with God, and after we plead our case with God, rest in his forgiveness. Rest in his forgiveness. I'll just take a deep breath. I think sometimes we get so caught up in trying to make it up to God. Trying to work through guilt in our own way. Overcome the shame through our own methods that we forget what God really wants us to do, is take a deep breath and rest in what he's already done. And rest, rest in the remedy that he's provided for us in Christ Jesus. We see David simply resting. He got honest with God. He pled his case based on the character of God. 
Now he determines in his heart, I'm going to rest in what God has promised me. Verses 8 through 10 say this, Away from me, all you who do evil, for what the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. Rest in knowing that God cares about you, that he's forgiven you, that he is going to restore you back to life and health again. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Listen, David rests on the assurance that God has heard him. David rests on the assurance that God has accepted his request for mercy and forgiveness. David trusts that God does forgive him and will heal his wounded soul and will restore him to life again. But he also knows this. There are enemies who will try to remind him of his failures. And there are enemies who will try to rob him of that assurance. And there are enemies that will try to steal the peace that he's found between himself and God. Listen, Satan is the enemy of your soul. Satan is the enemy of your soul. He wants to keep you wallowing in the septic tank of sins, guilt and, and shame. I want to point out to you the way this works. I want to also point out to you the remedy for the efforts your enemies might take to bring you down once you have been restored in the eyes of God. you got to remember something. This is all about you and God. Other people have no say in this matter. Satan has no say in this matter anymore when you come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. There's a great little little book called By Grace Alone uh, by a man named Sinclair Ferguson, who's a tremendous pastor, tremendous Bible teacher. I'd encourage you to get the book and read it. But he points out, that there are four fiery darts that Satan likes to throw at us to keep us sitting in the septic tank of shame and guilt. Fiery dart number one is this. You could call it rejection. God is against you, Satan says. He's not really for you. How can you believe that God is for you when you see the things that are happening in your life? Rejection. Fiery dart number two that Satan likes to throw at us to keep us wallowing, mired in that septic tank. Call it accusation. I have accusations I will bring against you because of your sins, Satan argues. What can you say in your defense? Nothing. Nothing. Fiery dart number three, condemnation. You say you're forgiven, but there's a a payback day coming, a condemnation day coming, Satan insinuates. How are you going to defend yourself then for what you've done? Fiery dart number four, fear. Given your track record of failure, what hope is there for you that you're going to persevere through all of this? You're never going to make it. Let me tell you something. We've been given a defense that counters all of these attacks. That defense is found in the word of God. That defense is found in the word of God. The defense against these fiery darts is, according to Ephesians 6.16, to take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the enemy. The shield of faith. This is why you need to spend time in the Word. Spend time with God. You need to really know who He is. Not what you think you know about Him. You need to get to know Him. We can rest in the promises of God 
who says to us in Romans 8, 31 and 35, neat little passage of scripture, we just sang a couple of songs that drew from those lyrics. I don't know if Micah did that on purpose. You had no idea what I was preaching on, did you? I think the Holy Spirit kind of orchestrated a lot of this stuff this morning. He's real good like that. Fiery dart number one, rejection. Here's our faith response. When Satan tells us that God would never accept somebody like us. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I want you to, let, let's just say that, those two verses together. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Do you sense a trace of rejection in that promise from God? What do you, what, what do you pick up there? Complete and full acceptance from God. Fiery dart number two, accusation. Stop listening to the devil's accusations. If it's been covered by the blood, it no longer applies. Accusation. Uh, Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. If you're looking to Satan for justification... Oh, Lord, you're in trouble. He's never going to justify you for what you've done. He's only going to heap the accusations on. It's God who wipes the slate clean and justifies you in the name of Christ Jesus, your Lord and Savior. Faith response to condemnation. And some of us, and I, and I talk with many of you through the week, some of you guys struggle with this one. You still feel condemned even though God has said that you are blameless and innocent in his eyes. You're still laboring under the assumption that you are condemned because of what you have done in your past. Listen to what our faith response is to that fiery dart that comes from the enemy. Romans 8, 34. Who then is the one who condemns? Somebody tell me, who is it? Who's, once, once, once your sin has been washed away by the blood of the Lamb, who? Who's the one who condemns? He could, but he chooses not to because the price was paid. There's no longer sin credited to your account, wiped away, all the debt paid in full. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. And what's Jesus doing for you right now? Interceding for you. Praying for you. Pleading your case at the throne of God. Fiery dart number four, what's our faith response to fear? It's confidence. Confidence, trust. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's going to separate you from the love of Christ? Confidence. Keep walking it out. 
you're going to persevere if you keep your eyes focused on Christ. Don't quit. Persevere. Walk it out. Fix your eyes on Christ Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You're going to make it. There's going to come a day where the struggle is over. That's the great hope that lies ahead of us. You might be struggling today with something going on in your life, but that struggle won't last forever. There's a light at the end of this tunnel. You just keep walking it out. Keep walking it out. You're going to get there. Through the grace of Christ, you're going to get there. For crying out loud, don't keep sitting in the septic tank. We're here to help you get out of that septic tank. We don't mind getting a little stink on us when we do it. But that's why Christ has brought you here. That's why Christ has brought us here. To help each other. Stay out of that septic tank to keep moving forward in Christ Jesus to the glory that awaits us there. Because of Christ and what he's done, we can stand before God and we can know that he's heard our prayer. I don't know where you're at right now in your walk with the Lord. I don't know if there's a particular struggle going on in your life. There may be. But I am telling you this morning that you don't have to keep sitting in that septic tank. There's a way out. There's a way for you to be cleansed once more. Doesn't matter how many times you might have fallen in that septic tank. There's more than enough Lysol to go around to clean you up again, if you will. The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ can purify your heart, your mind, and your soul. And that's what he wants to do this morning. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to come back and pray and worship the Lord a few minutes more. The key to this, the key to this, I believe with all my heart, is to first of all have a right understanding of who God is and what he's about. God is about forgiving. He is about showing mercy. He is about displaying his love. He is about lavishing that love on us of being a God of compassion. And that's why Christ Jesus came and lived among us. When we approach the throne of God, we can rest assured that he knows where we're at and what we're feeling because he lived among us. So some of us might need to start there to reorient our thinking about God. He's not some kind of tyrant. He's not some kind of ogre, monster who can't wait to punish us because we've screwed up again. That's never the way the Bible describes God. From start to finish, he's a God of grace and mercy. So patient and so kind and so good.